How do birds and bees fly in groups without colliding? Or know how to navigate straight to a food source? Studying these tiny insects can give us insight not only into how our brains work, but also how we might enhance aircraft navigation. Donalu talks with Professor Mandiyam Srinivasan, whose work crosses nature and neuroscience. So Srini, your research is about the birds and the bees, um, and we'll touch on both of those things in a little moment, but I just am interested in how it all began for you. You, you study, you, for years you've studied bees now, but where did it start? Were you a biologist to start with? Uh, no, no, not really. I started off uh, getting interested in electronics because as a young school kid, uh, I had a neighbor who taught me how to uh, build transistor radios and I got fascinated by electronics. And so I did my undergraduate and master's in electronics. And uh, well, when I was doing my master's degree, uh, I sort of had a, what would you call it, a, maybe a bit of a premature midlife crisis. How old were you? I would have been, <laughs> oh dear me. Um, Early 20s, maybe? Quarter, quarter life crisis. <laughs> yes. Exactly. exactly. And I said, maybe there's something more to life than just being an ordinary, boring engineer. And I was asking my professor, you know, who was sort of um, about to um, supervise me on my master's degree project, what could I do in this kind of interface between biology and engineering? And he suggested, hey, Sweeney, why don't you look at um, the human eye movement control system? Look at how, you know, when, you're, when your eyes are following a moving target, for example, a flying bird or something, um, how does your eye actually move to keep that bird in, in view all the time? So, so we decided that we'll model it as a servo mechanism, a kind of a target tracking mechanism. Uh, and that turned out to be a lot of fun. And um, so when I went to Yale to start a PhD, I was looking for someone who was working on the interface between biology and engineering in this way, you see. Um, and it turned out that the only person who was there in the engineering department who had this kind of interest was a person who worked with insect eyes. It sounded interesting, so I got into it. <laughs> and now for, was it 25, 30 years, you've been studying bees? Probably even longer, but I wouldn't tell you exactly how many years, <laughs> because that would reveal my age, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah. So in general terms, can you tell us about the research that your lab here at um, the Queensland Brain Institute does? Okay, so what we're interested in basically is, first of all, you know, if you... Um, if you just look at a bee setting out from its hive, it'll do a meandering search for food. It could fly up to maybe 10 kilometers looking for food. When it finds the food, it literally makes a beeline straight back home. So it knows exactly how far away the, it, has, it has flown, and it also knows exactly what direction it should fly to get back home. And not only that, but when it gets close to the hive, it makes a beautiful smooth landing at the entrance. So all of this is being done with a brain that's so small, it's about the size of a sesame seed, right? It's just amazing. And so part of the, what we're trying to do is to work out how these miniature brains really work, right? just, just uh, to understand these creatures better, to what makes them really tick, right? What, what's, uh, what, what's elegant about these creatures? Uh, that's one aspect, just the, the, the basic science aspect. Uh, the other aspect is if they do do something interesting and cool that, we, that surprises us, uh, maybe we could apply some of these ideas to design novel algorithms uh, to guide aircraft, mm-hmm. uh, which will make aircraft uh, more or less independent and relying reliant on their own sensors rather than rely on external signals such as GPS or radar and things like that. Because so, that's the way an animal has to really manage. It has to rely on its own sensors, right? So tell us more about how um, bees, to start with, how, how do bees use vision to navigate? So one of the Interesting peculiarities about insect vision is that although insects have two eyes, two compound eyes in this case, 
Uh, the two eyes are actually very close together. And this means that uh, you're stereoscopically challenged because the two eyes are so close together, you cannot get enough stereo cues uh, to, to find out how far away an object is. The reason why stereo works so well in our case is that the two eyes are fairly far apart. They're about eight centimeters apart. So if I look at my finger with, you know, with my left eye and then with the right eye, uh, the image of that finger shifts from one view to the other. And what my brain is doing is it's actually measuring that amount of shift and then working out by triangulation how far away my finger is, mm -hmm. right? But now that's, that works because my two eyes are fairly far apart, so they're getting two different views of my finger. But if you take these two eyes and move them closer and closer together, like you know, what you have in an insect where the two eyes are only about a millimeter apart, wow. maybe a couple of millimeters, there's hardly any difference between these two viewpoints, so you cannot really uh, measure distance very accurately. So insects have used a completely different way to see the world in 3D, and this is what we've been looking at. They're designing experiments to try and work out exactly how they work out how far away something is and how they will avoid a collision with it. And yeah. talk, talk us through some of those experiments. How do you set something up to, to be able to measure mm -hmm. that's, how... That, that's the thing. You see, that, that's the, the fun part about working with insects is because you cannot ask them, hey, what, what, how are you doing this? <laughs> because they can't talk back to you, right? I mean, they cannot answer your question. So you have to devise an experiment that tells you the answer. So we noticed many, many years ago, just purely by accident, that when a bee flew through uh, a narrow passage, uh, maybe a hole in the wall or through a narrow tunnel, it flew fairly precisely down the middle of the tunnel. And we asked ourselves, how did they do this? Because they cannot use stereo. They don't have stereo. So we wondered whether they were doing something far more simple. For example, if you balance the speed of image motion as they fly down, you'll make sure that you're flying down the middle. If one wall appears to be moving faster than the other wall, you know you're flying closer to the nearer wall, right? So are they doing simple, something as simple as that, balancing the image motion? Well, the way to test that is to fly a bee down this corridor, right? Then film it from above using a video camera. And sure enough, it flies down the middle. But then something very interesting happens when you move one of these walls. So if you move this wall in the same direction as the flying bee... You've got a pattern or you've something. You've got a pattern on the wall. Yeah, you can project a pattern or you can move it uh, on a mechanically on a conveyor belt. So what you find is that when you move the pattern in the same direction as the incoming bee, then the bee flies a lot closer to that wall because the image speed on that wall is low, because the bee and the wall are moving in the same direction. So it thinks that wall is much further away. Oh. So it moves closer to that wall to compensate. And exactly the opposite thing happens when you move the pattern in the opposite direction to the bee's flight, because then the bee is moving in one direction, the wall is moving in the other direction. So the high image velocity, the bee says, whoa, there's something dangerously close here. I better move away from this wall to, 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 to stay in the middle. Mm -hmm. So that little experiment tells us that this is what they're doing. They're going down the corridor and balancing the flow. And what is fun is that someone later on tried the same experiment with human beings, and they found that human beings use the same cue. Oh, although, do we? Although we don't realize it. <laughs> we, we're unconsciously using the same cue when we navigate down narrow passages. I've heard you say in previous interviews that um, you've also done experiments with bees in mirrors, in that bees... Ah, oh, yes, yes. This is very interesting. So what they seem to do is if you make a bee fly towards... Uh, uh, you know, any kind of object or surface, it, it will avoid it. But strangely enough, it does not avoid the reflection in a mirror. Its own reflection in a mirror, it does not seem to avoid. So if you make it fly towards a mirror, um, it goes and slams into the mirror, although it can obviously see it, so its own reflection. What's interesting about a mirror is that it removes the parallax, you see? So when I move to one side, the image moves by the same amount, your reflected image. And so that's exactly the same thing as what would happen if you're looking at a very distant object, 
for example, the sun or something like that, which is very far away, you would get the same effect. So the bee does not perceive any danger because there's no image motion, because the image is moving with the bee, you see? So it's as though it's very far away. So yeah. it doesn't think it's getting any closer exactly, to it. Exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. And tell us a little bit about your more recent research into um, bees having handedness, so to speak. Oh, yes. You know, we, we are right-handed, right? And well, m- most of us. Most of us, anyway. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I always get into trouble with that one, but most of us are right-handed. <laughs> and there's nothing wrong with being left-handed. <laughs> it's probably unique, actually. And uh, the prevailing uh, sort of thinking has been that, you know, handedness uh, in most creatures is, is, is usually, you know, one-sided. So, you know, um, uh, people have found, for example, that birds will tend to use their right eye to uh, look for food and their left eye to be vigilant for predators, wow. you know, and, and so that's all been done. And uh, usually people feel that, uh, okay, that, that's set in stone and all birds behave the same way, right? All individuals of a given species behave the same way, for example. But uh, that does not seem to be the case. And now people are starting to kind of look into it deeper, I guess. And we're finding that that may not always be the case. So individual bees and individual birds may have different preferences. For example, you can train bees to um, choose between two gaps. So they're flying down a passage and they, in the middle of it, they encounter two windows. Can, they can be of different widths. And you ask the question, okay, if both the windows are the same width, uh, what will a bee do? Will it choose either one with, you know, half a probability of half? Or will it uh, show a preference for one side or the other? And we find that individual bees have individual preferences. Some prefer the right one, some prefer the left one. And you can measure the extent of bias by changing the relative width of the two windows and finding out where the balance point occurs, right? So a bee that prefers a, 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 the right aperture, the right window, will stop going to the right window only when you make that window really narrow compared to the other one and vice versa. So there's a whole spread of preferences for different bees. So they're not all the same. And similar thing with birds too. And what we think. Uh, it might be useful to have something like this is because if you have a whole bunch of, uh, let's say, a bee swarm or a flock of birds trying to fly through a dense environment, then uh, if all of the bees just preferred the larger gap, for example, that would not be a very good idea, right? Because you got a big crowding in the larger larger aperture and no one's using the smaller gap at all. The traffic so jam. It, yeah, it'd be a traffic jam. It wouldn't be a good way to go through, right? So we think this is some kind of maybe an automatic system that's built into this uh, thing which uh, allows them to spread themselves out in a distributed way and go through the entire thing. And there's no, no one telling them what to do. Each bee uses its own preference, right? And there's no central control. And this might be a nice way to, uh, for a flock to go through a forest. And maybe this is something that can be applied to drones as well uh, in terms of you know, deciding a fleet of drones going somewhere. They can more or less self-organize themselves and go through it efficiently. I want to touch on the applications of this research in a second, but just to jump back to training a bee, you mm-hmm. mentioned you know mm-hmm. you can train them to fly between these two windows. To go back to basics, how does one train a bee? Oh, it's very easy. You can do it in your backyard. Really? Yeah, yeah. And by the way, bees are not at all aggressive when they come to get some food from you. They're in a foraging state of mind. Uh, they're not in a defensive state at all, so you can even reach over and stroke stroke their bags as they're drinking uh, from your sugar water solution. They're, wow. they're, they're lovely creatures. So what, what happens is that, um, okay, you can, you, can, um, you can do it in your backyard. You can place a sugar water feeder outside in your backyard, maybe uh, give it a bit of scent of rose or lemon from, you know, the bakery aisle of your supermarket. You give it, and pretty soon a bee passing by will notice it and come back and have a drink. And if the sugar solution is uh, sweet enough, uh, it will go back home and dance and tell the other bees where this good stuff is. 
and it'll bring more and more bees uh, to this place and they'll get started to get a buildup of bees uh, coming to you. Mm -hmm. And then you can basically step by step move this feeder into your uh, lab uh, and get them to fly down your apparatus. Uh, and and then do all these experiments. The one thing you just have to be careful of is that uh, you know if, if you've got a very attractive solution, then you're pretty soon you'll be mobbed with bees. <laughs> and you know the average hive has about forty thousand bees. You don't want all of them to come and visit you. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a little trick to stop that from happening. Uh -huh. And this is once you've got your set of bees coming to you, and you move that feeder into your lab or into your room where you want to do experiments, you can place another feeder outside, which acts as a bit of a decoy. And this is a weak sugar solution. So what happens is that the other new recruits that come, come and land on this obvious thing at the entrance, and they have one taste of this uh, sugar solution. They say, ah, this is a false alarm. <laughs> it's not as good as we cracked up to be. They get disappointed, and they go back, and they never come back again. So it's only it's the ones in the know. Only the ones that know the secret of where the good stuff is that keep coming again and again. And then you can mark them with paint, colored paint, and color code them and keep track of individual bees and work out, know how many times they've come to visit your setup, how many times they've been rewarded when they've done the right thing. If you're doing a learning and memory experiment, which is something we've been doing as well in the past, oh, wow. so you can follow their, their progress individually. Yeah. That's incredible. And so all these bees, I guess, are free to come and go as they please. Absolutely. And there's no coercion. There's no harm done in any, any <laughs> No, they're not, being forced, they're not being forced. They're not being forced. They're coming there of their own free will. Because they can at any time uh, just give up and go off somewhere else if they find something that's much more attractive. So in, in the springtime, it's very hard to attract them because you're competing against all of the other spring blossoms. But in late summer, when everything else is dried up, they're desperate. So they can come to you even for a very weak sugar solution. <laughs> that's, that's incredible. But it's amazing. You can do that in your backyard. And, and you know, if you have a family with kids, you can show them how to train bees. It's, uh, it's so easy and so simple. I want to jump now a little bit to birds, which is something that you started studying in recent years. Um, talk us through um, how you're doing experiments to avoid uh, watching, you know, collision avoidance in birds. Yeah, so um, the thing that got us interested in collision avoidance was uh, when you watch a bird flying through a dense forest, uh, it's just so agile and it's so careful. It hardly ever damages or hurts its wings, right? It just goes through uh, the thicket just amazingly. Mm -hmm. There's some wonderful uh, videos in the BBC, which you might have seen, that show, uh, I think it's a hawk, a goshawk flying through a, a, a dense forest. And it's amazing how it does it. So the first question we asked was, how does a bird even avoid hitting its wings against some static obstacle? You know. So what we did was we uh, trained uh, birds, budgerigars, to fly through um, a, a narrow window, a gap that we set up in the middle of our tunnel. So uh, as they flew through the tunnel, we looked to see what the birds did when they flew through the gap. And then we made this gap progressively narrower and narrower. So what we found was that when the gap was wide, the bird would fly straight through, uh, you know, without any problems. But as the gap became narrower and narrower, and just when the gap became just as wide as the wingspan of the bird, then and only then would the bird temporarily close its wings as it went through the gap. So the bird, these birds seem to be very body aware. They're aware of their own dimensions, you know. Mm. And uh, what's also interesting is that individual birds, they are not all the same size, and each one has its own body awareness. So the big birds know that their wingspan is much bigger and they will close their wings earlier, right? Anyway, as you're yeah. coming in. So uh, that's the other interesting question. We don't know if this is kind of genetically programmed into them or whether they're learning it through experience. That's something we need to look at uh, uh, further. But um, birds are very um, careful not to fold their wings uh, unless it's absolutely necessary because when they fold their wings, they become like a projectile, like a falling rock. 
and they have no control over what happens. They're purely under the influence of gravity, right? Mm. <laughs> so they want to minimize that thing from happening. So they don't want to have that happen very often. Um, so birds are very tight and rigorous about when they close their wings. And people have done similar experiments with human beings. They've shown people a doorway huh. and said, okay, do you think you can go through this doorway frontally or would you need to turn sideways? And apparently most of us give ourselves a, a 30% uh, safety factor margin, 30% safety margin. We're not as, as strict as birds. We're a little more conservative. <laughs> but what is also really interesting and unexpected is that these birds, there's a lot of uh, careful preparation that goes on even before they enter the gap. So uh, when a bird realizes from quite some distance away that it's going to need to fold its wings, right, when going through, it will, it will increase its altitude to pre-compensate for the loss of height that, that occurs when it closes its wings. Wow. So they're planning their flight quite carefully. And so they're, they're, they're pretty thoughtful creatures. So I think if you call someone a bird brain, you're actually complimenting them. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us about some of the bio-inspired robotics that have come about as a result of your lab's work. Uh, the, the basic idea that you can um, use the, the motion of the image to work out how far away obstacles are, that's something that's, that insight has come uh, really essentially from studying insects. So the idea is very simple. Let's say you're flying along in a straight line or you'll see even driving along in a, in a car, you find that the, uh, the trees lining the road, they appear to move past your visual field very rapidly. Mm. That high speed tells you that these objects are very close to you, right? Whereas something that's uh, much further away in the distance, for example, the, the clouds in the sky or a distant hill or even the sun, uh, the images of those objects uh, hardly move at all as you're moving along in a straight line, right? And that slowness of motion tells you that those objects are very far away. So by measuring this image motion, you can work out how far away objects are. So that's being used to avoid collisions, also to make nice landings. So if you watch a bee that's coming into land, uh, when it's flying uh, high, it's flying fast. When it's flying low, it's flying slow. And if you analyze the data, it turns out that what it's doing is it's actually keeping the velocity of the image of the ground constant as it's coming into land. So at every moment in time, it's adjusting its speed to keep the apparent speed of the ground constant as it's coming in. And this automatically ensures that as it comes closer and closer to the ground, it's flying slower and slower, right? So it's a beautiful way, biological autopilot, that allows you to land uh, on a surface without needing to measure how far away you are from the surface. When you think about it, you don't need to know how far away you are. You don't need to know how rapidly you're approaching the surface. All you need to do, do is keep that image velocity constant and you make this beautiful landing, right? And it's a perfect so that, light that, yeah, landing. That's something we can put into aircraft. So that's a very nice way to land because you don't need to use radar or anything like that. You just use your, your, your vision system, right? Uh, and things like flying down uh, narrow passages, that's, that's again being done using, uh, you know, uh, this balancing flow principle that I tell, told you about. The other thing that bees are using is the, the odometer, the thing that tells them how far they've flown to get from the hive to anywhere else. That's again done by measuring the total amount of image motion that they experience over the journey. So that's the, that's the odometer. That's what the bee records and tells the other bees when it comes back home and dances to tell what, how far away the food source is. It, it's measuring how much of image motion it's experienced. And that's something we're putting into aircraft now too to give them a visually driven odometer. And so that's something that uh, Boeing is interested, for example, has been interested, I should say, in working uh, with us uh, about because uh, quite often if you have a, a, a loss of GPS signals, then you've got to have some uh, fallback 
mechanism or some some process by which you can at least keep track of roughly where you are. To navigate. Yeah, navigate. And that's where some, some of the biological inspiration comes in very handy. Tell me about the machines or the drones that your lab has built based on this technology. We started off by using uh, fixed-wing aircraft, model aircraft. Uh, you know, they're, um, you can buy them in any hobby store. They're maybe a couple of meters wingspan, um, and they have a propeller in the front. And we just modified it slightly by moving the, the engine and the propeller onto the top of the wing, and we mounted our vision system, biologically-inspired vision system, in the, in the nose cone there so that it gets a clear, unobstructed view of the, the environment. And then we put in all these algorithms that we've learned from bees and, and flew the thing to see if it uh, flies or crashes. If it, if it crashes, it, it means our theories are not right. <laughs> we go back to the drawing board and see what, what's wrong with our theory. But we've been able to get these fixed wing aircraft to do uh, completely autonomous missions now. Wow. So they will take off, they will go a particular height, a particular distance. We can even get them to do a, an aerobatic maneuver, uh, a roll, for example, and come back home. Well, insects have a very nice way of measuring how, what their orientation is. They look at this horizon and the profile of the horizon, and by looking to see which part of the horizon is up and which part of the horizon is down, they can tell whether they're rolling this way or rolling that way or pitching up or pitching down. So you can use that to not only stabilize the aircraft, but also to make it do interesting maneuvers. Wow. Like rolls and loops and things like that. So all of that can be done autonomously, it turns out, with fixed-wing aircraft. Now we're moving on to uh, uh, quadrotors, uh, which are the multi-propeller you know, helicopter-like devices, mm-hmm. because they're a little more insect-like. They can hover as well, you see. Uh-huh. So we're putting all of these into these drones, and of course drones are now getting more and more popular, right? <laughs> so that's what we're working with now, and getting that to be fully autonomous as well. So with these autonomous vehicles, would they be flying at a, a level lower than clouds, for example? Because if there's lots of cloud cover, does that interfere with... Sure, sure. I mean, because our system relies on vision, if you're in a whiteout, you're completely gone. Yeah. So you have to rely on other sensors then, for example, a gravity sensor and your gyroscopes and all the traditional sensors that aircraft use. You'd have to fall back on, of course. And also, if you're flying at night, it's totally dark. You've got a problem. Now, you can cope sometimes with infrared cameras, which pick up some of the, you know, the heat images from the ground. Mm-hmm. The signal is not as uh, good in quality as you know, daytime visual signals, but you can manage. Uh, but of course, if you're flying um, in the Arctic tundra or something where everything is uniformly very cold, then even an infrared camera is not going to help you, right? So it's got its limitations. So it's mm. not it's not a complete panacea. So do birds and bees do they avoid flying at nighttime? Some, many insects are actually very sensitive. Their eyes are actually better than ours in terms of sensitivity. Many of them, not all of them. But there are some insects uh, that people have noticed can actually sense the color of a flower when we cannot. So, you know, our color vision drops out below a certain uh, level of light. You know, if you go into twilight and then uh, late night, your cones, the, the ones that uh, in your retina that, uh, you know, process the color information, they're no longer functional because it's below threshold. But with some of these insects, they can even forage at night and uh, be aware of the color of a flower when at light levels when we cannot. Wow, that's <laughs> incredible. So what other kind of insects um, have this ability? Uh, mostly moths. Uh, a lot of nocturnal moths have, seem to have that. There's nothing uh, amazing about our vision when you think about it. If you look at the spectrum of vision that you have in other animals, ours is, uh, it is it's reasonable. So-so. But it's not certainly not the best. <laughs> So what's next for you or for the future of brain-inspired robotics? 
Our goal is to get these, these collision avoidance strategies automated into aircraft in such a way that uh, they can be entirely self-reliant and not dependent on um, a central control uh, tower, for example, which is monitoring the uh, motions of all these aircraft and telling them what to do, how to avoid collisions, because there's more and more aircraft flying around, especially with all these drones now that everyone's flying around. There's no central authority that can really keep track of them mm. and stop them from, you know, uh, prevent collisions. It just gets too unmanageable. So we'd like to have a kind of a, an independent self-reliant system for each aircraft uh, where it can tell whether it's on a collision course with another aircraft or not and take the appropriate measures for that. That was Professor Srinivasan on the fascinating topic of birds, bees and navigation. If you'd like to learn more or support the work we do at the Queensland Brain Institute, head to qbi.uq.edu.au. You can also download the latest edition of our magazine, The Brain, Nature of Discovery. That's all for this episode. Thanks for listening. Listening.